The opinions and views expressed in this video are purely for entertainment purposes and not for investment advice. Goons, we're back again for another episode of Jack of All Trades. With me, as always, is Kaylin and our producer Sam. And I thought today was um, was interesting. Uh, I want, this past week was a big week for my mom's portfolio, which I took over in January. And I just wanted to go over like um, kind of the importance of actively managing your portfolio, or if you can't or don't have the time to do it, like get somebody to do it because hers is a great example of a contrast of what can go wrong and what can uh, what can go right. So uh, let's get into it. Um, so Sam, if you could share my screen, I just want to show, so this, so I took over her portfolio in January. So year to date, it's up 27%, S&P is up 17%. So right there, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I can beat like 80% of fund managers who can't beat the S&P. I've just beat them. But, um, but, but the reason her, but so here's the thing though, her portfolio, she's had it since 2009 and it's up 230 something percent, in, you know, in over, in over 10 years. That's like underperform. Yeah, in about ten years. That's like heavily underperformed because if I kept doing twenty something percent um, year year over year return, she would have like quadrupled or or quintupled her her money by now. Um, and so when I took over her portfolio, I remember Kaylin was telling me about it. Cause I, um, she had two holdings. She had a bunch of cash and she had two holdings. She had Apple and she had um, this drug company. I told her to get out of Tesla because that's when Tesla hit all time high, but. The, she was in a drug company. I looked at the chart and I sent it to you. I'm like, dude, this is, uh, I, I, I was like, this frightens me. You remember that? Yeah. <laughs> so I played that one a million times. Yeah. I remember you told me that. So I'm like, yo, this dying stock. And, and the reason she's in it was because she used to work for that company. She's like, that's the only company I know. So I got money into it, right? Yeah. But it's just funny that you were like, and you're a short seller. So I'm like, so you've been shorting that for years while she's been <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably not a good sign, I guess. <laughs> and it kind of explains the performance a little bit. Um, but so, but so that's her, right? She's a little bit cautious. Like she's just she just viewed it as kind of like a bank account. Maybe she'll invest in it. Maybe not. She's just kind of money she'll store aside because this was her RSP. But mm. she did go to TD, or rather, they approached her, and then they put her into these two products. So that's her RSP. They put her into this uh, financial planning product, an RSP and an RF. I don't even know what that stands for. But um, I wish I took a screen capture of the performance. So basically, in the same period as the RSP, when the RSP went up 270%, this one was up 14%, and this one was up 17 So that's over, over 10 years, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, you, if they were up a percent a year, even compounded, they would, be, they would be like higher than that. Yeah. So, I mean, and then we were just looking, because I couldn't find what was in these products, but we, we, we were just doing a little search on TD's website, and we, uh, your, your, your eye caught the, uh, the aggressive growth portfolio. <laughs> which is up, what, like 9% in 10 years? Yeah, which is up, yeah, 8.7. Didn't even hit 9. Uh, 8.7 <laughs> in 9 years. Oh, by the way, it's down 3 and 3.4 this month. <laughs> what the hell, man? It's down 3.4 hey, this month. Either we're not understanding this at all, or this is, like, the fucking worst thing I've ever seen in my life. It's like getting punked. <laughs> so aggressive. Honestly, it makes it, the, the only thing that makes any sense to me is if all of that stuff is just like massive dividend stock, five to seven percent dividend. That's the only thing that would make sense. I just find it hilarious that it did eight, it did less than nine over 10 years and it lost like a third of that in a month. <laughs> 
I honestly, I don't even know what to say to that. That's but here, we, we, we opened it up and we were like, we had another laugh. So <laughs> this, this aggressive fund is holding other funds, not stocks, other funds. Yeah, and we got to point out here. So the, the biggest holding of the aggressive fund is a global low volatility fund, which I is think we should, brilliant. I, I, if I was if I was my mom, I'd go up to the financial planner going, define aggressive. Okay, but see, a lot of people don't a lot of people don't understand this stuff, right? So like, we're not here to like make fun of everything. Like, we're just you know, there's there's obviously a lot of stuff behind the scenes here that we don't know because we can't see exactly what the stocks are that they're in or if they're dividends or whatever. But if you're looking at stuff like that, like the key thing that like some of the questions that you guys want to ask if you're putting your money in with funds like versus managing yourself like we do is you know you want to get a really good idea what fees you're in because one of the things that you know I pointed out when we were looking at this is normally like anytime you give your money to a fund, there's always a fee. If you're gonna take a maybe a 1% or a 2% or half a percent or whatever the fee is. Like, even if you just buy an index, like the S&P index, for example, you're still paying a fee because it is technically an actively managed fund. Like, right? they're, you know, they brought Tesla in this year. Um, you know, so there is still stuff trading hands. I think it's like, I don't know if you know what it is, David, offhand. Was it like, like a half a percent or 0.3 or so. something like that for the S&P? So, uh, well, if it's an ETF, it's 1%. Um, other funds, it, it varies. Um, a standard standard. Yeah, so if, no, go ahead. Yeah, so I was, yeah, I was gonna say like if you put your money into like an actively managed fund, you really got to be careful with what you're paying for because there's a few things you have to look for when you like when you sign your contracts and stuff is you could be paying like say two and a half percent on your mutual fund just for their own fees and like if they'll they'll actually give you a breakdown so like you can read in there like some things will say like miscellaneous office expenses for example which literally could be like the coffee in their break room like it could like all that stuff is in there so you have to be careful when you're reading that stuff um but like the thing to keep in mind is just like if if they're giving you statements that says like oh say the s p went up 10 percent and you were up 11 percent, so you beat the market well if you have if you're paying like say a two percent fee then you actually only made nine percent so you're actually losing out on this people that are managing your money the other thing to watch for is, you know, with mutual funds, they're, they're trading within the fund. And depending on which fund it is, a lot of the times you'll you'll still be charged commission on those trades. And you'll also might be taxed capital gains, right? So if, if they're not holding positions for more than a year, you could be paying income tax on some of your investments as well. So there's that to keep in mind. And then with this one that we're looking at here, where it's saying you're putting your money in this fund, which holds 15 other funds, now you have a whole other layer of things you have to look at where you have to say, okay, in each one of these other funds that my fund is holding, am I paying fees to the to my main fund? And then what other fees am I also having to pay from these other subsequent funds? What other commission fees are they paying on my trades or tax? Like there's all these layers of things. And like there is a lot of funds out there that don't charge you that. It'll be like, you know, you put your money in the main fund and it's like, you know, it'll be one and a half percent, which is reasonable if they're doing well enough. And then all the funds that they're investing in, there's no additional fee. So you don't have to be scared just because you're seeing something like this. But those are huge things you guys want to keep in mind, because if you're putting your money away for like, you know, 20 or 30 years, you know, you look at it on paper and you say, oh, OK, like between all these funds and the taxes or whatever, like I'm only losing, you know, quote unquote, only losing, say, 2 percent a year. That 2 percent over 30 years, like 
even for like a modest investment fund, like you're talking hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars when you go to retire, like it's a lot of money. So you guys, like it's, it's something you really need to be aware of and be careful of when you're, when you give your money to people. So I just kind of wanted to make that point. No, that's an excellent point. That's actually why um, when I left Brinks, I took what was managed back then and managed it myself because it, it was the exact same thing. I was putting some product that I that was holding banks and some like other non-growth stuff. It was risky. <laughs> that was the risky one. And they, I was getting hosed by the funds. Like I should have been making money every year, but because of these percentages, like this, like this portfolio's percentage, it's, it's um, management fees, 2.323%. Then you're getting dinged mm. per, um, per trading, like you were saying. And there's another funds expense. There's another. So you're, you're out four and a half percent before anything that's, else. Yeah, that's way too high. Four and a half percent is absurd. I'd run for the hills if I knew I was getting charged 4% on my fund. Yeah. That's insane. And so that actually explains the popularity of ETFs that came because ETFs are like, they're not actively managed. The funds um, cost is usually 1%, maybe two at most, but $3.9 trillion are wrapped up in it and they came out of nowhere. And it's, and it's because mm -hmm. of costs uh, like, like this, right? If the S&P 500 on a good average year does 7%, four of it goes to this management fee. I'm only taking three at home. Yeah. Like what the hell? Yeah. Well, think like think of it this way, guys, because I know like it seems small when you think 4% all 4% is nothing. Think of it this way, and it's going to sound a lot worse. The S&P in an average year does 10 does 10%, right? So if you're in an actively managed fund that's matching the S&P for growth, 40% of your profits are 40% of your growth every year because you're 4% out of the 10, right? So you're losing 40% of your potential returns every year if you're matching the S&P. Whoa. Sorry, just uh, I think I pulled up the inverse. VIX. Because I'm just trying to pull That's up like, easy. yeah, it was the it was the inverse. I, I'm just trying to pull up like just to, to give a like an idea of the SP 500 uh, ETF. Just the random ones. You see what it looks like. Because I pulled up the VIX, which is wrong. Then there's the bull. Mm -hmm. SPX. Uh, yeah. Which one's on a more... Vesco low, low volatility ETF. Is that the one? There we go. Look, hmm. since since COVID, it's up 71%. You know, like what I'd say if you time the bottom, but let's say you bought randomly here in the middle of 2015. 50, 50, 56%. Yeah. Right? That's like what's five, six years. That's a very good return for six years. Yeah, for, for one where you're not, you just set it and forget it, you know? Yeah. So if you were getting charged 4% every year, then you're down 24% over that period of time. If your fund can match the S&P, which I'd like to point out, the majority, the vast majority of funds do not do, surprisingly enough. Most funds do not beat the S&P index and you're at 24%, but because that's compounded over those years, you're actually out significantly more. It's probably something like 36% or 37% because all the money you lost in that first period of time, you know, you go over the one year, say it's 10%. Well, you only gain 6% because you were paying 4% in fees. Now the other 4% that you would have had that would have grown now doesn't exist. So, you know, it's not as simple as just saying, oh, well, I lost 24% over that many years. No, it's the compounding effect of it as well. So it's really probably like realistically, you probably would have only made like maybe 20% growth if your fund was matching the S&P and you had 4% fees 
when the S&P actually did almost 60%. And look at this, like two of the 10 years, they at a loss, a pretty significant loss. The other one, two, three, four years, they may have matched the S&P's 500. So six out of the 10, they couldn't beat the S&P 500. Yeah. And that's the shit thing too, with a lot of these funds is like the way they advertise is like, they'll, they'll, they'll put up a chart like that and be like, oh, look, you know, we had this many years that were close and we had like a 21% year and, you know, a 16% year. And, you know, they just kind of ride on those for, you know, just ride that as long as they can to get investors. Like it's a, it's a, it's, it's kind of a sleazy market, like for lack of a better term. It's just like, there's a lot, there's a lot of really good ones out there that make you a lot of money and guys know what they're doing. They're smart guys and their goal is actually to help you. But the problem is a lot of them just get their money from having investors. They get their money from these fees. They get their money from trading commissions. Um, so they, it, they don't really care. Like the, the best funds to look for are the funds that only profit if you make money. So like they take a percentage of your profit. Those are the best ones. So if it's like, if their fees, for example, are say, you know, 2% of your profits, that's, that's a better thing to see than saying our fees are just 2% of your money. Because if it's 2% of profits, then their goal is to make you as much money as possible. Because the more money they make you, the higher that 2% is for them. Mm. Right? It's, it's just human nature. I, uh, I, did, I, I never did ask what Brandon's uh, family, what they charge for their mutual fund, but I know their fund is special. So it was in that. Low. Oh, is, is it? Yeah, it was low. It was, I, can't, I don't want to say what it is, but I know it was, it was, it was reasonable. And well, the, the, the selling factor for me, and I think it's great for the audience when you should, you should ask uh, a PM portfolio manager is um, Brandon's fund. They have the majority of their own wealth in that fund. So it's in their yeah. best interest to protect that wealth. I mean, that's a huge, huge thing. Yeah. Plus all of them, like even their personal accounts are also investing in all the same stuff they're putting their clients in. Yeah, exactly. So, and there is a lot of funds out there that are like that. Like there is a really good fund. The problem is there's so many. It's, it's just, it's so easy to set this kind of thing up and just scam people because they have no idea. Right? Most people have, no idea. So you just look at the thing and you say, oh, it's a mutual fund. Like here's some numbers. Everybody says invest in the stock market. I don't know what I'm doing. My buddy told me about this guy, so here you go. And then you just you just ignore it. You don't think about it for 30 years, right? But it's it's so much money. Like it's so much money that I think everybody should educate themselves to the level of understanding what their fees are and how much it can cost you over time. Not the stocks, not how the market moves, not the economy, just simple fees and how they work and how much it can cost you. It's really simple math. Any contract you get from a mutual fund will tell you that in the contract. If you take the time to read it, what do you think about this analogy that shopping for a mutual fund is kind of like shopping for a personal trainer, right? You want to lose some weight. You could go to a bank, which is akin to going to good life, or you could right. shop around and find like that one good, you know, you know, from word of mouth, people who've had results, right? You find yeah. a portfolio manager or a financial advisor it's like that. Yeah, for sure. It's like you see the guys at Good Life that it's a it's like a two day weekend course, and they come up to me and try and train me, and I'm you know four times bigger than that. It's like really, dude. Like you know, <laughs> like I want to get trained by the guy who's bigger than me, who's been winning shows for ten years. You know what I mean? Yeah, because I, I I should point out that I'm not shitting on the entire uh, industry because I know a few no. people that are that are um, uh, not financial planners 
and they're pretty good, but they don't work for a bank. They they work for more independent shops, and they'll care. Because mm-hmm. actually, my buddy has a great explanation. He's like this. He's like, if I give my clients a return, they're gonna want to reinvest. That's more money for me. Right? Yeah, because he probably gets a percentage of their profits. Yes. Whereas yeah, the opposite exactly. side. That's... Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say that's just like the oh, okay. no, probably one of the number one things to look. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I know the opposite side where it's like, if you if you're somebody that works at TD, you get a commission of every product you sell, but you have no interest in yes. whether or not it goes up or down. You just you're just trying to sell me a product. Yeah, most funds that are run through banks are like that. And I say most because not all of them are there is a lot of funds like in RBC and TD where they do not operate like that. But you do have to be really careful if you're going like most people go through banks because it makes the most sense, right? They're money managers. But most banks, there are brokers as well. Like you have TD Direct Investing, you have Scotiabank iTrade, you know, you have RBC, like all these companies, they, they have their own brokers. So, you know, it's like David, like you have a TD account. So every time you make a trade, it costs you 10 bucks in and out, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's, it's perfect, right? Like the more, the more customers they can get, the more money they can get. Every time they can make a trade, they're making more money, regardless of, the, of whether or not the stock goes up or down. Right. So that's that's a key thing to look for. But again, that's all written out in the contracts that you sign. So you can go to a bank, just make sure that it's not like that it's not going to be that kind of a situation where the only source of their income is their standard fees, which you pay no matter what, and then commission on top of that. Because then that tell that like those two things right away tells you that that, mo- that fund manager has zero interest or desire or reason or money incentive to make you anything like that no matter what your portfolio does they're still going to make the same amount of money right it's like it's like you know being in like a government job or something for example you know not this shit on government jobs but like there's there's no incentive right like think about if you're if you're doing like if you're building an extension on your house like you know you have to get permits for the for the structure well you give those permits to the town the town has no incentive from you to be quick, to be helpful, anything, because they're, they're getting paid regardless, right? They're getting paid by the, by the taxpayer money. It doesn't matter if they piss off one person or go slow or take, you know, a year to do permits that they could have done in a week because they didn't feel like it because there's no incentive. It's the same thing, right? Whereas if it was like something along the lines of where the more efficient they could be delivering these permits back and the more, you know, the quality of the structure, like however it was laid into it, if that was all how they were going to make money, you would be seeing the best buildings go up, going up. The permits would be flying through like crazy. Like it would be, it'd be a fantastic system, right? There has to be incentive. Yeah, that's right. The government job is like, you're just that file that stands between them and lunch. So they're like, fuck that file. I'm going to lunch. Yeah, 100%, man. That's why it's so hard to find people that are good to work with in the city. <laughs> yeah, man. I just, um, so I think this is a good episode in trying to teach people like, we're not trying to give you any style or anything like that, but like at least know what questions to ask or what's important to think about. It's, I think yeah. it's just like finding a, um, um, what do you call it, a personal trainer, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's just, it's, it's, but the, the, the nice thing though is that like you don't have to be scared of it and you don't have to be, um, you don't have to know anything about the, the economics of the markets or any stocks or anything. It's literally just, all it is is reading a contract and looking at where the fees are going. You just have to think objectively and say, okay, like I don't pay this person unless they make me money. And the more money they make me, the more money that they make. Like, okay, that makes sense. They're gonna they're gonna be motivated to make me a lot of money. But if 
you look at it and, you know, at the end of the contract, you're thinking, okay, this person, there, there's not a single incentive in here for this person to make me money and they're going to make money regardless. Then, well, that, that just seems kind of sketchy to me, right? Like why would, why would they even want to put the time of day in to do well for me if they get nothing else out of it? Um, what do you think about this? If, if let's say you're looking for financial planner, I, I immediately, my thought is this, like one good way to tell if this person is honest or not, is they're more than willing to give you more information. They'll tell you as much as possible instead of going like, you don't need to worry about this. Uh, we'll take care of that. Or that's something above your head, you know, give you that impression that's above your head or like, yeah, whatever you want to know, we're going to explain it down to the T. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the shitty thing too, that I like, I don't think it's like this across, across the board, but like, it's one of it comes back to the same old thing. Like the more money you have, the better your the better your options are, right? Like the guys that have you know ten million dollars to throw into one of these accounts, they're the guys that are going to get the really good people because it's not volume based, right? Like the, the those guys those guys that are investing their money, you know, their their fund manager who's making one or two or whatever percent of their profits, like that's a lot of money. Like if you're moving ten million dollars, like you really want to move that ten million dollars. 2% is going to be a lot of money for you. And if you have 10 clients, you know, you're hustling every day to make them as much money as you can. Whereas like, you know, you get people on the other end of the spectrum where it's like, okay, maybe I have 20,000 bucks or 15,000 bucks to invest. You know, people that are managing those accounts, it's, it's harder to find because for one, there's certain levels of accounts where, you know, they might have a half million or a million dollar minimum. So you can't even get into them. Yeah. And then outside of that, it's like, you know, if you have 15,000 bucks, even if there is like a 2%, you know, fee that the guys earn on the growth of your portfolio on such a small amount of money, it's, you know, it's like, oh, whatever, this is a couple of bucks kind of thing. And then it just becomes, it, it could become a numbers game where they're managing, say, you know, a couple thousand portfolios that have $15,000 in them. So then it's worth it. But that's just also a big headache because then you're dealing with so many different clients, right? So it's, it's kind of the it's kind of the shitty reality of of the of the fund world in that sense is that once you you know once you have a lot of money it's easier to make money it's the same thing all the time right so it's it's just harder when you're getting into it which I mean everybody starts at that level unless you're you know a, you have some giant inheritance or something but <laughs> uh, you know what I'm glad you pointed that out I forgot to mention like Brendan's fund did. Uh... I don't know. I remember that. I don't know. I forgot what stats he was saying, but they've been beating the S&P for like quite a while. They were on a streak. But the problem is his fund doesn't, his minimum investment, I think was a hundred or $150,000 or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I know the, like the ones that my dad are in, like the minimum investment's half a million. Right. So <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. you so, know, it's, it's not like, you know, every, everybody and their mother can go and, you know, invest in this account. So so what do you think about this? If for people that are actually average, um, they buy the S&P 500, like an ETF in the S&P 500. Um, and I just want to show them the performance real quick. So the S&P 500, for those that don't know, is just a collection of the 500 uh, listed on the U.S. stock exchange. And so let me pull up the monthly performance. I mean, yes, over the years, you're going to have these like giant, you know, let's see, what is this, 30, 40%? Well, that's a 15% pullback. 2015 obviously you have covid that was like 50 something percent this was the financial crisis that was 57 percent. but let's say you bought midway through 2005 so so it's not quite to the top of the financial crisis right if yeah you, you you took a ride down but if you just held you would have gone up 
275% over mm. a 12 year span. That's a plus your dividends that, plus your dividends that you're earning on the S and P index, which you can keep rolling back in. So you're actually earning more than that 275 because you're actually yeah. getting dividends quarterly on this as well. Yep. And if you're doing an ETF, you're paying that one two percent fee, which is quite yeah. reasonable. It's it's lower than you'll find on any mutual fund for sure. Yeah. So yeah. I think the two options is this. Uh, sorry. Yeah, no, that's. I think it was basically going to say the same thing you were. Is that the two options are you know see if you can find a really good money manager, put your money in the S and P, or like I mean, if you're young, you could do a bit of both, right? Like if you have some money, you could you could you could look through the contract, find a mutual fund that you think is really good, and split your money, put half with them, half with the S and P, if you have enough money to do so, and then see which one does better. Because the tricky thing is like there is there is indexes like the TSX I know hasn't done that great historically like. I think, you know, if you look at the, the, I think it's the Japanese index, didn't it crash like 20 years ago and it still hasn't come back to those highs? Yeah. Hang yeah. So like, like there's still risk. Like it, it sucks. You're never going to be riskless. I mean, like the United States realistically is probably one of the best things that you can bet on. And they're until they, until they're not the world house, which I don't see happening anytime soon, then you're pretty safe because if something happens to the U S economy, the whole world's affected regardless of any other index you're in, it's still going to go down. And then, you know, they're, they're just, this, they're just the hub of everything, right? They're the hub of the whole world. So it just makes the most sense. So I was going to say something about the, um, cause I was learning more about it. Cause everyone was talking about inflation and everyone, the example, cause they're like the only, the only developed nation that had, uh, was it negative interest rates for a little bit and whatnot. Um, so mm. they had the stagflation. Yeah, <laughs> here we go. They peaked in 1990. Still not there. Yeah, I know. Still not there. So 30 years, and it's still not those. That's the Japanese one, right? Yeah, and, but there's something yeah. really weird going on with their market. I don't. Th they're they're basically trapped because, um, and the U.S. kind of smartly sidestepped this thing with their money printing and their bonds. Mm -hmm. They they finagled it. But what happened with Japan is that I think the bank in Japan owns like 40 or 50 percent of all the corporations just to save mm -hmm. them they, they bought all the shares they printed money bought all the shares i think that has what's keeping them um low and end up performing right right but yeah it's uh, kind of like when you look at it like that because the thing the thing too is like if, if you're buying into like an index like realistically you're you're not just like one lump sum and that's it forever like you're buying into it consistently so i mean you know this is probably the worst example we can look at where you know it still hasn't gone back to the highs but like realistically, even if you're still, if something takes, you know, if something gets to a high and it dips relatively down, it comes, say it takes 20 years to get back to those highs through those 20 years, you're still, you're still buying in, buying in, buying in. So by the time you get back to break even, it might, it might only be 10 years, right? And then you start getting in the money. again. That's the other thing you guys got to keep in mind. It's not like, okay, I'm all in here. And then it takes me 30 years to get my money back. It's like, no, no, you're, you start here and then you're just buying pieces all the way through and that's pulling your average down. And then eventually you, you're going to get back to break even like well below those previous all time high. Actually, that's a great example of uh, dollar cost averaging. I do that with my swings. Cause you mm. never know. And you rarely get the perfect entry, right? So you, you get a yeah. range and it's like, I'll enter well, here and I'll just keep buying. 
Yeah, because it's it's growing as a whole, right? Like it's like the, like the S and P, obviously in America, like the biggest you know the biggest thing in the world is it's even if you're going into a bull market like 2008, like all or a bear market, sorry, like all through that, you know, if, if you're still just buying in, buying in, like you know, every say every month you put money aside, and every month you buy a little bit more into these indexes, then as the markets are going down in a bear market, you're just you're just slowly pulling your average down, pulling your average down. So it still is better in the long term. I should mention that what we're talking about is investing, not trading. I think a lot of people. Yes. <laughs> um, because cause, cause now that we're talking about the long term, it's like my first and by far largest account is an RSP. I pay that 10% mm -hmm. trading fee because it's a fucking RSP. I can't wait. Like, I like to take the money out, right? Like, I'm not touching it until I'm 65. So, yeah, I'll eat the $10 to make a trade. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, but I got into the TFSA, too, and I didn't shop around. I, it's a good example of shopping around. Because I didn't shop around. I just, like, I'm, all my accounts are at TD. I was comfortable with it. I, was, I understood the system. So I opened my TFSA there. And I'm still paying 10 bucks a trade for my for my swings now, but... Whereas like interactive mm. brokers, which you use and which are, which is the other one you use now? Um, I have three. I have Quest Trade, Interactive Brokers, and uh, Alliance Trader. Those yeah, are my fees three. Are, fees are a lot better. Two bucks or something. Yeah, Quest Trade's five bucks, uh, up to ten depending on how many shares you buy. And then Interactive Brokers is a penny a share, I believe. And then it goes up to I think it goes up to ten as a max as well. And then Alliance Trader is a dollar, no matter what, over, I think, 300 shares, it starts to go up. But then I think it's still max. So it just depends what kind of size. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm comfortable locked in with my RSP and TFSA, but um, my, my TFSA is starting to hit limits. So I'm, whatever overflow I have, I'm going to use that interactive brokers account. So I'm, I'm yeah, because you, you can still open a TFSA with interactive brokers too, right? I can, um, but I just, you know how we, 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 we both compartmentalize stuff. I'm just like, I'm so set with that section. I'm like, if I do just cash trades, I'll just do it with IB or something. Yeah, I'm the same way. Like I like my Quest Trade accounts, my investment account. I look at it like a month, like once a month. And then my other two are shorter term accounts. So there's way less money in them. And everything, all the profits just go into the investment account. Yeah. So why don't we end it with that? Like people, I think this episode gives them a good, um, good, good basis to know what questions to ask. And um, the last thing, which I think is important that people don't talk about enough is compartmentalizing your portfolio, your intention with the money, right? If you have a, a, a chunk of money you want to invest, don't trade with it. Don't act like a trader with it. Don't think like a trader with it. Just invest it. And then if you have a trading account, then use another thought process for that. Yeah, sure. Cool. All right, YouTubers, goons, we'll see you again later. Later.